you know, we built this military in our own image where there was a very heavy reliance on almost exclusively on the Afghan commandos and the special operators to do the job. And then without warning, in June, every contractor in the nation was removed and the Air Force was rendered impotent within hours. This historic moment, the last U.S. troops have withdrawn from Afghanistan, with the Taliban we pushed out in 2001 back in control of that country again. The chaotic and deadly U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan stunned Americans and the world. Congress has now ordered a broader investigation. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pasulo. Our guest today is retired Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, who is going to talk about the volunteer effort he led to rescue people from Afghanistan as it fell to the Taliban and his very important new book, Operation Pineapple Express. Like many other Americans during the summer of 2021, Scott Mann watched in horror and disbelief at the disarray of the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan, the disintegration of the Afghan army, and images of Taliban fighters rolling into Kabul on U.S.-made vehicles. How could the United States have spent 20 years and trillions of dollars and shed so much of our own blood to try to bring peace and representative government to a country only to abandon it to the same repressive Taliban regime that we had liberated it from in the first place? And how could we abandon the brave Afghan men and women who had fought beside us and were now being hunted down and murdered by the Taliban? Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann served in Afghanistan as a member of special forces. He felt he had to do something. And as he searched for a solution, he was joined by a group of Afghan vets. Navy SEALs, Green Berets, CIA officers, and U.S. aid advisors, who also answered the call and came to be known as Task Force Pineapple. It's a great honor to welcome the group's leader, retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. I grew up in kind of moved all over of the South. My dad was a, a forester, a wildland firefighter, but I, I spent most of my time in rural Arkansas, grew up in a little logging town and uh, met a Green Beret in a soda shop when I was 14 years old. And uh, the guy was, his name was Mark and just one of the coolest guys I ever met. He uh, he sat down with me and he, and he talked to me about what special forces actually do and, and explained to me that they're very different than the SEALs and the Rangers and that their mission is to really, they're kind of a modern day Lawrence of Arabia and that they, they parachute in behind enemy lines and they, they make these connections and build these relationships. And then they help indigenous people to fight back on their own. And I was just, um, I have to tell you, Ralph, I was just mesmerized by that because I was a runt of a kid anyway, kind of always on the outside looking in. And there was just something about that life that just spoke to me. So at 14, I decided to become a Green Beret, and it really never changed for me. I've, I got commissioned I got commissioned in the Army ROTC, went a few years uh, in the regular Army, didn't do great there, and went and tried out for Special Forces in 1995. 
um, got selected and uh, never looked back. I spent about the next 18 years of my life as a Green Beret working in uh, a lot of crazy places to include uh, most recently uh, multiple tours in Afghanistan. And uh, this leads right into village stability operations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was because I think it, it's an important chapter in the Afghan history that most people don't know about. You know, people look at the 20-year Afghan war and they think, why were we there so long? Why did we have to, you know, go, spend our blood and treasure when it seems in many ways that the Afghan people were not standing up for their own country with the corruption? And what I will tell you is the the reality is that there, when we were attacked on 9-11-2001, worst terror attack in American history, it emanated from a strategic safe haven that had we had no ground intelligence network and we had no antibody or 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 local opposition to these violent groups like al qaeda so so when we went into the country after 9/11 we were very focused as president bush said on retribution on you know bringing justice to the evil do- doers and rightly so and taking out bin laden and all of that however what i will tell you is for about 10 years we largely pursued a kind of top-down strategy in that country that was focused on putting in a local, a liberal democracy, uh, trying to project a Western way of life onto a society that is largely tribal. And it was actually, it ran counter to much of what that country is about. And so, including Green Berets, we were supposed to be the ones who knew better. And we were very much in about walking the enemy down, putting scalps on the barn, and so it was about 10 years into the war, uh, Ralph, that we decided we needed to get back to our roots. There were more Taliban in the rural areas than when we started in 2002. Uh, and we decided that we needed to get back to our roots and, and kind of a magnificent seven kind of way, uh, start working with local, rural, tribal leaders to stand up on their own against the Taliban. And it turns out there were quite a few that were willing to do that. And so I was fortunate enough to help design and implement a program called Village Stability that, again, was a, the way to describe it is like a modern-day Magnificent Seven where teams went in, they donned indigenous garb, they grew their beards out, and they lived and worked and fought alongside their Afghan partners with Afghan special forces at their shoulder as well. And it was a very, very successful program. For about 18 months, it really put the, Tal- the Taliban and al-Qaeda on their heels uh, to the degree that uh, Osama bin Laden was even calling it uh, probably the most dangerous program uh, to his insurgent efforts in the country. Yeah, I think people forget that when we first went into Afghanistan after 9-11, it was really the Northern Alliance that helped win the war. We, we sort of uh, supported them, but without their troops, without them fighting and, and dying, uh, it, it wouldn't have happened. So it's, it's important to know that, and it's important to know that there were only a handful of people on the ground from the United States, less than a hundred, less than a hundred special forces and special operators in the early days. And they routed the Taliban and Al Qaeda. If you have ever seen the movie 12 strong uh, or read the book, horse soldiers, what those small groups of green berets were able to do with Pashtun tribes and Northern Alliance fighters. It's pretty phenomenal. And I think the reason that also I'm glad you bring that up is that I hope people are paying attention to this is because now because of the wholesale abandonment that we've done in that country, we have now reset ourselves to conditions that were actually worse than pre 9-11 in terms of our exposure to violent extremists and the propensity for another attack on the homeland. That's right. I don't think people realize that. 
So while you're doing the village stability, you meet a gentleman named Nesamuddin Nazami. Yeah. A pretty extraordinary yeah. guy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him? An amazing guy. And like so many people ask, why does Afghanistan matter so much? Why did the veteran population get so up in arms over the abandonment and the way we left? And the reason is because of guys like Nizam. The relationships, you know, understand that there were only about 775,000 Afghan war veterans from the U.S. out of 340 million people in this country. And so a large part of the fighting was done by a small percentage of the country over and over again for 20 years. And and in the course of that, you started to build these relationships. And Nizam was no exception. He was a sergeant first class in the Afghan National Army. Uh, to tell you a little bit about him, he was, when he was, he doesn't even really know his, his exact birthday, like many Afghans. He was born in the northern region of, of, of uh, Afghanistan. His father was a freedom fighter and was killed by the Soviets in 89. And a few days later, his house was bombed and the, uh, by the Soviet MiG fighters, and everybody ran out of the house, and they forgot the baby. The four-month-old Nizam was, was covered in debris, and somehow you know, they pulled him out unscathed. And I think it was really metaphorical for how he lived his life uh, the rest of the time. His mother was sold into a forced marriage to a man much older than her. He despised little Nizam and wouldn't even let him sleep in the house. He slept in the barn until he was 11. And he ran away from home, lived on the streets of Takar until he joined the Afghan National Army, which was a brand new thing. A lot of people don't know that. The Afghan National Army didn't exist. The, the, the Afghan the country of Afghanistan had been at civil war and occupied by the Taliban. So the last time there was an Afghan National Army was, you know, truly back, you know, in the 80s. And so when, 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 when he joined the army within a year, he became a commando which is like our Rangers. He became Afghan Special Forces, and that's when I met him. And he ultimately ended up going to our Special Forces qualification course at Fort Bragg. He had that kind of trust, but he was a real natural out in those villages. He could build a relationship with anybody. He was shot through the face doing that mission, warning uh, U.S. Green Berets of an ambush, and would go on to serve for seven more years straight in combat as a special operator and shot four more times by ISIS. And uh, just the most amazing guy that I've ever seen in terms of his loyalty, his dedication, his fidelity, and definitely a guy you want on your side. Oh, just you yeah. know, yeah. And you will never meet an SF guy who worked with Nizam that doesn't just think of him as a brother. And and you know, Nizam never had a family of his own. He never had a home of his own. So when he f- had the opportunity to join Afghan special or Afghan special operations and work with U.S. special operators. Even though he was, you know, maybe five foot tall and, you know, a buck oh five soaking wet, um, his, his heart and uh, his courage really stood out, and they still do. And, and uh, he became like a somewhere between a little brother and a son to me. Nezamuddin Nezami, known as Nezam to his friends, was born in 1988 in the Uzbek province of Takar in a mountainous region north of Kabul. At the age of 17, he joined the Afghan National Army like two of his uncles before him. Soon after that, he was selected to become a member of the Afghan Special Forces fashioned after our Special Forces. It was in his first mission as part of the Village Stability Operations, VSO, that he met a tall, soft-spoken Green Beret from North Carolina named Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. 
They worked together in small remote villages with tribes and village elders to build support for the fledgling Afghan government. Nizam was so good at building rapport with the locals and fighting the Taliban that in the spring of 2016 he was selected to attend the U.S. Special Forces Qualifications Course, known as the Q Course at Fort Bragg. But soon after Nizam returned to Afghanistan, he started receiving death threats from the Taliban. When the U.S. government negotiated a deal with the Taliban in early 2020 to withdraw from Afghanistan, Nizam realized he would no longer be safe in his own country and applied for a special immigration visa to immigrate to the U.S. A year later, having heard no response from the State Department and seeing the Taliban quickly taking over his country, he reached out to his special forces buddy, Scott Mann. It was bad. It was it was a play-by-play that he was sending from first the hinterlands of, of rural Afghanistan where he was doing security work, but then he ultimately fled to Kabul and was hiding in his uncle's house like Anne Frank. But I was getting these messages, Ralph, on my Signal app from him that was almost a, a provincial play-by-play, district center play-by-play of the collapse starting in early summer. And he even said very early on, he said, I think, I think the... I think the whole country flips in a month, and I think he missed it by three days because he could tell. He was on the ground. He could feel it. He was on the ground. He could feel it. Meanwhile, you know, our administration, our politicians, even our generals are are, are claiming that, you know, everything's fine. It's going to hold. And those of us who had fought in that country who spent time there, particularly SF and special operators, we we knew that something was about to to go south in a big way. And and my big thing was I had retired in 2013. I met Nizam in 2010 doing the village stability mission. And I retired because I did not like the way uh, I was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And uh, I didn't like where things were heading in Afghanistan. I didn't like the frankly, the careerism that was running rampant at senior levels and in, in special ops in the military. And, and so I decided to step away. And I had pretty much put the war behind me. Nizam and I stayed in touch. And what I kept thinking as this thing was collapsing was, I do not want to get involved in this again. You know, I, I do not want to get sucked back into working with the government and, and the jackassery that was already playing out. But, but at the same time, it was becoming extremely clear that no one was gonna was gonna step in on Nazam's behalf or any of our other peers partners, and and that was kind of my dilemma at a personal level was one what could what could a retired fifty three year old storyteller person possibly do anyway, but but am I going to be able to live with the fact if something happens to this young man when when it seems like we're the only hope he's got left. So you start, I think it was July 1st, uh, we closed Bagram Air Base, which is a still something that shocked me. I mean, I, I have friends in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. And, and when I heard that, it, was, it just sort of was like, what? You know, that makes no sense at all. You would think that yeah. would be the last thing we would, we could, we would defend. Uh, yeah. And so you're, at that point, um, your messaging with, with Nizam picks up, right? And I, and I understand from your book that he had submitted a, a special immigration visa f- yeah, application. Yes, and what, what was going on with him? Well, it had, you know, he, he left the Army in, I want to say it was around 2017 or 2018, Ralph. And he, was, he was, had seen a lot of trauma. 
uh, a lot of night terrors. And, and so there was a handful of us that talked him into leaving the Army and ultimately coming here and resettling here. But he took a job as a security contractor and was working in the north, with making good money, which is normally in guarding infrastructure, which was still serving his country. But it wasn't the heat of the ISIS raids, you know, getting shot in the chest plate three times in one mission and that kind of thing. And so um, he seemed to be in a good place. And then as things started to fall apart, and it became very clear that his SIV that he had applied for, that we had all helped write letters for, had languished for a year. And, you know, it wasn't going to, by early summer, it was clear that that wasn't going to be, and even if it got approved, I mean, how would, how would he even get on an airplane at this point? Because none of this was really clear. And, and the other thing, too, you brought up a really good point about Bagram, is when Bagram closed, I, the, the community, it's hard to describe, the, the special operator community in particular, the veteran community, we just looked at each other in disbelief. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it is it is the kind of uh, it is a very defensible um, piece of key terrain, and and it was very obvious too that there were American citizens still in the country, that there were, you know, a ton of these SIVs that we had made an explicit promise to. That's the other thing I think that folks don't know is a, a special immigration visa is a visa where the United States guarantees you and your family's safety for risking your life on behalf of the United States. It is an explicit promise an explicit guarantee for risking one's life and we had tens of thousands of these folks who had not even been processed and yet we're giving away bagram to 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 reduce our footprint onto like a a postage stamp in Kabul. and the thing is ralph that i've been astounded with on this is that the number of senior politicians diplomats and generals and admirals who have tried to equivocate that decision and 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 convince me that it was a perfectly rational decision and and it just wasn't it was no more rational than president trump de- deliberating and negotiating with the taliban and excluding the afghan government and the afghan military you know there were there were colossal mistakes made towards the end of this war on both sides of the aisle politically and no one seems to want to own them yeah and even but even given those mistakes that were made and obviously there were mistakes made from the very beginning of the war yeah. right but you would think like okay we make the decision we're going to pull out militarily yeah got it um but wouldn't you come up with a plan to to to, to do this in an orderly way um, it just, to me, seems so callous and absolutely, you know, senseless. Uh, well, I, I don't think there is any explanation. There's not. And these were political. But, but here's here's what's key. And this is why I brought up the other thing about the Doha agreement. Right. Because what what I think we have to understand as Americans is that the the, the political ineptitude that existed and that was these decisions that were made in a vacuum we, we really, as citizens, I think we need to set the partisanship aside and we need to look at the decisions and go, OK, for example, even if we had kept Bagram because of the fact that the previous administration had negotiated only with the Taliban, how invested do we really think the Afghan government and the Afghan National Army is going to be in any solution that we say, you know, we need your help securing Bagram? You know, there was an opportunity where that could have been addressed and we could have gone back to the drawing board and the negotiating table and included, you know, if you're going to leave to me, if you're going to leave, if you're going to withdraw, fine. 
But how can you think that doing a, you know, a, a negotiation directly with the enemy you fought for 20 years and excluding the interim government that you helped stand up is anything but an unmitigated disaster? And the fact that that was passed from one administration to the next without any you know, forethought or without any uh, adjudication or adaptation, to me, is it, it, I mean, I've had E5 sergeants say to me, what were they thinking? You know, and, and so it, it is so abysmal and so uh, against our nature as a country. I, I just, you know, I, I just scratch my head at it, Ralph. And, and, and the final thing is, was the removal of these contractors. You know, we, we, we built this military in our own image where there was a very heavy reliance on, on for, for close air support and for surgical fires and for intelligence. It was contract heavy, and we relied almost exclusively on the Afghan commandos and the special operators to do the job. And then without warning, without warning in June, every contractor in the nation was removed. And, and the Air Force was rendered impotent within hours. Yeah. And, and, then to, and then to say to the public that the Afghans weren't willing to fight and to paint this narrative, it's just unbelievable. Okay, so let's go back to to uh, Nizam, and he's he's now in Kabul. The fifteenth of August was a key date for you. Uh, that's the day that uh, President Ghani of of Afghanistan is evacuated yeah. to Uzbekistan, and Nizam's situation. He's in Kabul is is getting increasingly desperate, yeah. and you you make a personal decision, and Scott, which is yeah, incredible. Yeah, it was a personal decision, and and it's not something, you know, one of the things that I try to say, I mean, there's a reason that I wrote the book in third person. I didn't write it in first person. I didn't write it like a memoir because I don't, my actions don't rate a memoir. They don't. What what I decided to do was to help a friend, you know, and to help a a buddy that had helped me multiple times, and that frankly, I didn't think uh, I could live if I didn't do something. And, and so, you know, I want to just be super candid about that because this is not, you know, I look back on it and, and there is no end zone dance. There's no high five. There's no, here's what, here's what I did at band camp. You know, it was something that frankly, I did not want to get involved in again. I did not want to get sucked into this. I, I had my life back in many ways, like a lot of us did, but you know, um, it was a, it was a friend who was in a bind to the degree that nobody else was coming and so I made the decision to get involved. And the way I thought about it, Ralph, if you can see behind me here, this uh, the whiteboard sketch. I, I came to my office. I turned country music on real loud. And, <laughs> you know, and it was after he had said to me that he didn't he, he just didn't want to die alone. And I made a promise to him that he wasn't going to. He was going to get over here. He was going to get to the States. And, and you know, I tried everything I could to assure him. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I just felt like, man, He's a dead man walking. You just made a promise that you can't keep. But but I felt like I had to try any way that I could. And 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 the only thing I knew to do, because I hadn't been in that country in a, in a long time, I hadn't done this kind of work in a long time, was I reached out to some buddies who were still on active duty, who were Green Berets, who had worked with Nizam, and we just started to put our heads together and asked ourselves, how could we become his eyes and ears and help him keep calm and move through those streets, move through that crowd. And ultimately maybe we could get him on a plane. We had no friggin' clue what we were doing. And I think 
for me, something that I took away from this was that was the was because my father was a big influence on this. And even when I decided to help Nizam, there were all kinds of moments where I wavered and just thought to myself, one, I have no business doing this. There's no reason. I mean, this is way bigger than me. This is way bigger than this volunteer group. This is, an, as my friend Duke says, this is an Uncle sam size problem that we're trying to solve with cell phone, Mac computer, and, 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 and pension fund. You know, and, and it's, it was just ridiculous. It got so ludicrous that, you know, after we got Nizam out, K- Kamala Harris, is a special advisor, called asking for help for their guy. You know, it, it, it was, it was these, and it's yeah. like, what planet am I on? Yeah. You know, yeah, where, bizarre. where this yeah. kind of thing is happening, this kind of shifting of personal responsibility. But, but I, I just go back to your point and I, and I just want to make sure I'm clear about this is there were multiple inflection points along the way on this, where I said to myself, I should not be involved. We should not be involved. We're just going to do this a bit longer. We're going to halt because to us, what it was, you had, Tens of thousands of commandos and interpreters and special operators who represented 20 years of work, blood and treasure, to build an intelligence capability, to build a partner capability that was a really good antibody to violent extremism. And now we were abandoning it wholesale. And all of us were saying, surely to God, at some point, the agency or SOCOM, someone is going to pick up the phone and go, Hey guys, um, we need to we need to get your manifest so that we can get these guys out of here. Right. Nobody was doing that. Never happened. And yeah, and never and happened. you know, but we kept telling ourselves. I kept telling myself, this is just up for a little while. Yeah. It's somebody's just for gonna, a little while. Somebody's yeah. going to jump in and help. Somebody's going to jump in who's supposed to be doing this, and then we can we can go back to our lives and we can responsibly hand this thing off. And who knows? I mean, this becomes like a pretty good private-public partnership. It truly is a Dunkirk kind of moment. But it ended up being, you know, not, I got to tell you what those guys and girls did on the ground at, at, at Kabul International Airport incredible, was epic. Incredible, yeah. yeah but incredible they were put heroism. in a position, yeah, yeah, but it was mostly, you know, it was a lot of junior leaders uh, taking initiative on their own and figuring stuff out. Um, there was no coherent evacuation plan. And, um, it's a real shame because I, I, I think we could have got out a lot more and we also could have established the resilience of those who stayed behind to not only stay behind and survive, but resist. And we, and we didn't do that. In July 2021, Scott was happily married with three sons. He was the CEO of a thriving professional training and coaching company specializing in human connecting skills. The last thing he wanted to do was to jump back into the emotional trauma he had suffered in Afghanistan, which had resulted in serious PTSD that had brought him to the brink of suicide. Despite the fact that he was 7,700 miles away, he couldn't ignore that the Taliban was making gains in every part of Afghanistan and reimposing fundamentalist Sharia law. His Green Beret network was already swapping messages on Signal about how to get their Afghan comrades and their families out of the country. As Scott watched the increasingly dire news out of Afghanistan, he couldn't help thinking about his friend Nizam. Scott's youngest son was about to leave for college, but Scott knew that if Nizam died without at least trying to help him find safe passage, he wouldn't be able to live with himself. So he made Nizam a promise. 
He called him in Kabul and said, quote, We're going to fucking get you out of there. Keep your phone charged and be ready. Then he walked to his home office whiteboard and started writing down names of fellow Green Berets and others who he thought could help. He called the group Team Nizam. So with Nizam, what happened was we we didn't know anything about the situation at that moment. We one of the one of the special operators, special forces guys that was on our volunteer group named Mike, he contacted me and, and we were getting ready to move Nizam, but we were putting the plan together. And he said, we've got to move him now. He's got to go now. And I resisted that. I, I, I opposed it because I felt like, one, he's going to burn his safe house in the middle of the daylight. Um, he's got no place to, to go to if he does that. And we have no plan to get him in. We have no paperwork. We have nothing. And And Mike's point was, if we don't move him now, the Taliban are going to settle in their cordon and he's not going to be able to get through it. And when they check his creds, they're going to hang him from a lamppost. And so I relented. We moved Nizam. He, we, we helped guide him through the city. He, he got his own way through the crowd. And then he got about four feet from the Marines. And they were about to toss him out because he had no paperwork, no way to prove he was who he said he was. And that was when we made a desperation call into a State Department diplomat that we had been given a phone number in the blind. And we told the story to him very quickly. His name was JP. We talked about Nizam's history, about his, you know, being a special forces and commando and a U.S. trained Green Beret about getting shot, defending U.S. special forces. And JP said, you know, I was um, I was a Green Beret before I was a diplomat. Yeah, we got to take care of our own. Tell him to say pineapple. And, and so pineapple, the code word became, you know, what we yelled out and, and it got Nizam through. But but if I'm being honest, that whole thing was a lot of luck, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of outreach, a lot of collaboration. But as but what, what after Nizam got through, Ralph, then my phone started blowing up with all kinds of other buddies who were SEALs, Rangers, and they were they had made the same reluctant decision. They had they had gotten involved. And now and by reluctant, I mean, not that we didn't want to help our friends, but like, I, I'm not sure I should. Well, be you're, doing you're this. taking the responsibility of somebody else's life. Yeah. So and, you want to you yeah. want to be sure that you can deliver. Yeah. On and that you're promise. doing the government's job. Right. You're really right. doing the government's job. And so but the, the phone was blowing up and it became apparent that there was a lot more. And it was there that another decision had to be made was, am I going to keep going? And I think it wasn't really even a decision. It happened so fast. But but I do remember thinking, wow, this has gotten way bigger than anything that I think we should be doing. And, <laughs> and you're suddenly getting hundreds of phone calls. Hundreds. And our, 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 our chat room, we, we called it Task Force Pineapple. We just opened up the aperture. And I personally vetted every person that came in who was what we called a shepherd because, because it was moving so fast. I had no idea who was who. So I needed to talk to them, know who they were. Uh, if someone I knew brought someone else in, that was fine. But we were, you know, we were pretty methodical about how we, especially in the beginning, how we did that. And um, our numbers grew rapidly. We went to the, to the hundreds, then to the thousands of people that were trying to get in, mostly commandos, special forces, special mission wing. But here was the problem. We had tens of thousands of people in this crowd. You had these men and women on the perimeter who really had no way of ascertaining who was who. Um, but we knew who they were. 
We knew where they were and they trusted us. So we felt like our value proposition was what if we could construct a plan where we could move these at-risk individuals and their families, uh, these highly vetted people, to a certain point where they could be pulled in. And at the time, we didn't know what that was. It ended up being uh, an open sewage canal, a four-foot hole in the fence, and a company of 82nd Airborne paratroopers manning that place that they could pull them in. And we called it the Pineapple Express. But at the time, we didn't, you know, it, it took a little while to get that constructed. You it, found it's a so way, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, and to I, make and this I think, work. And I think that's a real thing for all of us, you know, is, is in times of chaos in particular. You know, humans are social creatures, and this is something I teach a lot in my re, my leadership stuff, is that we're wired to be social. And, and the reason is because, particularly in times of duress, when you are able to group and team and leverage relationships that were built when trust, when risk was low, you're able to do amazing things when risk is high. And I think if your intent is clear, if everybody yes. has the same intent and it's clear, well like, said, you can put away, you put, you put aside all personal differences, background. I mean, you can tell, you can hear it in somebody's voice, right? It's so true, man. And it's a great point. It's a great point. And I tell people like when they start getting political on this, I say, if you want to see what leadership looks like in this situation, we had tens of thousands of entries on the signal chat room from August 19 to, you know, August 31. The word Biden was mentioned one time and Trump never. There was no talk of there just was no time for it. it, it we, we everybody was myopically focused on the task at hand, which was honoring a promise. That's it. And and I think it's a great example for people all over the world. Frankly, it's like when the government fails, and in this case, n- there's no question that the government failed to do their job. You can either sit back and watch yep. it all go to hell and feel terrible about it, or people like you say, "Hey." I'm going to do something about this. I don't know what I'm. Uh, you were in Tampa, Florida, right? Yeah. People, other people were scattered all over the country, right? Yeah. Like we yeah. don't know what we're going to do. We're not even on the ground. We don't even know people on the ground. But we're going to figure this out. And and yeah. and, and you did. And and that's the beautiful the beautiful thing about the whole story. I, I appreciate that. And I and I have to say that the number of volunteer groups, Dunkirk. Moral Compass, Sacred Promise, we're all doing the same kind of thing we were. And I have to throw a shout out to the people in Pineapple. The other thing that was really beautiful, Ralph, was to see the people who stepped up and led when when they had something to offer the problem and then followed when they didn't. And man, what would the country look like today yeah. if our <laughs> leaders did that? You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Zach, and if you read the book, you'll read about him. An amazing f- former Green Beret. Yeah, uh, high school teacher, right? High, uh, yeah, studies. yeah, social studies, who his hero is Harriet Tubman. And, and, and came up with the idea of an underground railroad, even called the initial plan Operation Harriet. And, but it was also the congressional staffer who live, who, who had happened to meet the 82nd Airborne captain and first sergeant when they did the good deed of helping a, pr- a pregnant woman and her husband inside the airfield get to the clinic. And in the process, they put it all together that they had a mechanism to do more. And they said to live, if you need help with anything else, we'll do what we can. And so when Zach said to her, 
in that moment, I'll never forget it in that meeting when we were we, we faced the reality that we were not going to make the clock. We were not going to get enough people out. Zach said, you know, I've got a plan if only I had someone on the inside. And Liv said, I think I might have somebody. And I'll never forget that because I everybody just sat there for a second. And then it just started moving. And And the power of human connection in the darkest moments is just the most amazing thing. And how, let's let's talk about how did uh, Operation Harriet work? Right. So the way it worked was John and Jesse, who were the 82nd, they were the company commander and first sergeant. Who are they, uh, absolute, those guys should get, you know, medals of honor. They're absolute heroes. Yeah. They are some of the most amazing. I had the opportunity to go up and spend some time with them. We we brought them all books, and we we sat and we talked about moral injury, and it's probably something we should circle back to at the end and what those guys have actually experienced. But this is an example of of junior leaders who who saw what was going on. They they still performed their primary task of airfield security, but they but they also knew that the commander's intent that they had been given was if they could help uh, at risk people, they could. And so when they were, uh, when Zach called, you know, and I, Zach called me with this plan, and I thought, you know what, it's way better than anything I've come up with. Why don't you give John a call and tell him that you'll be the only one working with him? Tell him I appreciate it and and let, see if it works. So Zach called him, and both of them are close to the same age. And what they both agreed to, John said, "My phone's getting blown up, man. I need a, I need I, if I'm going to help anybody, there needs to be a plan." And that was when Zach presented the, the plan. And here's what it was, basically. If you were an Afghan commando, an Afghan special forces uh, operator, special mission wing, anyone that was in our manifest and you had family, your shepherd would send your name to Zach. Zach would send your name on a baseball card with photo, ID, your SIV status, whatever your paperwork was on a baseball card, similar to what we did when we were targeting he would send it over to John, and John and Jesse would only operate the express at night. They would go down to that four-foot hole in the fence along a sewage canal, an open sewage canal filled with shin-deep feces, and they would stay there, and at the appointed time, they would signal that the express was open. The commandos, special forces, and their families would have to move like tactical little groups. And in the main chat room, we would chat with each, we would talk with each other about where we were putting our different families. And Zach was the, Zach was the engineer on this thing. He would orchestrate that. And then he would line them up just like airplanes coming in at O'Hare. And, 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 and yeah. then when he would, when John and Jesse signaled that they were in place, they would, they would have a green chem light around their neck. Then uh, Zach would launch one chalk at a time to move towards the link-up site. When they recognized, because these operators, they understood how link-ups work. When they saw the green chem light, they would hold up a pineapple on their phone. And it would be met with a verbal response from John or Jesse saying, give me the name and number in your party. They would call that out. If it checked out, they would tell them to come down in the ditch. And then they would pull them out the other side, take them through the hole in the fence, pat them down put them in their Hilux trucks and move them on apron eight for processing and extraction. It was August 23rd, 2021, and Task Force Pineapple was having an impact. As dangerous and chaotic as the situation was at Hamid Karzai International Airport, an ad hoc team of volunteers working from basements and home offices all over the United States 
and communicating with British and American soldiers on the ground near Abbey Gate were getting their Afghan counterparts and their families out, five, seven, and 12 at a time. A former Green Beret named Zach Lois, who was currently an eighth grade social studies teacher living in upstate New York, hatched a plan that he called Operation Harriet after Harriet Tubman, the black abolitionist who had helped ferry enslaved people to freedom via the Underground Railroad in the 19th century. Zach would serve as the engineer, providing the paratroopers on the ground at Karzai Airport with information about the vetted individuals, interpreters, commandos, Afghan special forces, Afghan officials, and their families. Zach would text their names and photos to the paratroopers, who would act as conductors and call out their names, check their credentials, and usher them through a hole in the fence. The first night, they pulled in 130 Afghans, and the second night, more than 600, all out of sight of the Taliban, who were preventing people from getting inside the airport. Yeah, yeah, Will Lyles, uh, double amputee Green Beret, working from the C-suite, outside his C-suite office, uh, to save the interpreter that saved his life. Yeah, uh, from a ish, wheelchair, right? From yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you had Ish, who was an SIV uh, recipient, who was Jim Gant, uh, legendary Jim Gant's uh, interpreter. Uh, Ish had set up a operation center in his apartment in Seattle with a whole bunch of other Afghans, and they were all managing their own families. Uh, we had Rob, who was actually doing personal protection in Iraq who was coming back from running personal protection convoys and then would spend the evening hours uh, working to get his interpreters out who he had worked with. I mean, it would, and it just went on and on and on. It was amazing. And there were also, I have to say that we called them sheepdogs and I don't get, I didn't talk about them enough in the book. It's one of my regrets. I, I, if I had, if I were to do a second book, I'm going to talk about these guys more, but these were the active duty green berets, aviators, uh, infantrymen who were really risking their careers and were sleeping in their day room, sleeping in their headquarters, and were managing manifests as well. And they were they were working with groups like Pineapple and Dunkirk. And and I can't say enough about what the active duty population did as well. In in Bagram, no these these were active duty guys and girls in Fort Bragg, in Fort Carson. Uh, yeah, in Fort Bliss, and they were operating from their literally from their headquarters, from their team rooms, because they just could not sit with the notion that um, their partners that they had worked with were were being abandoned. So they joined up with us in a lot of cases, and we worked together uh, with our active duty brothers. And you know, we kept it obviously very quiet. It's one of the reasons I didn't talk about it a lot in the book was because these guys and girls are still on active duty, and I frankly think they would have been. I think they would have been relieved. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Wow. So. Operation Harriet, it, it's going really well. On I think on the 25th of August, you pulled in 130 people, and yeah. then you were going for 600 on the yeah. night of the 26th, which yeah. is, you know, incredible number of people. And I think uh, we need to exp- uh, explain to the listeners, if you could, what was the scene like at the at outside the airbase. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I I describe it as the raft of the Medusa, you know, the, the painting that hangs in the Louvre of a, of a raft of, of, of castaways that was cut away by a ship um, when the ship hit a sandbar and the, the better lifeboat rode away and they were towing, you know, the, what they considered to be the dregs of the ship. You know the volunteers and the soldiers. They were on a on a makeshift raft, and it was weighting the main lifeboat down. So they cut it away, and the and the individuals that were on that life raft that was cut away ended up cannibalism, violence. It was horrific. And there's a painting of it, and 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 the UC Tanner, who was one of the diplomats from Finland, when he described, he was on the ground. And he yeah, described he was a me, great, he said, great hero. He was a hero as well. He yeah, was a incredible. great guy. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, it really reminded me of that painting. And, and I couldn't get that image out of my head. But imagine, you know, tens of thousands of Afghans who see their 20-year uh, existence without the Taliban, with some measure of democracy and freedom coming to an end within hours. And it's very obvious that the only way out is on that is through that airfield. And so you've got Thousands and thousands of families out there standing in the 105 degree heat with their little babies, with their 85 year old fathers and mothers, pregnant, uh, being women. Yep. pregnant women going yep. into labor in the dirt, uh, children being trampled and, and fathers holding the babies up turning purple to the 82nd Airborne and the Marines begging them to help them as the babies expire within inches from their face. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was a, a level of human suffering that was, it just, it, it, it just, it's unimaginable. And that was the scene. And that's what every one of these families was going through. Now you add to that, the fact that the Taliban were there in a ring of security, beating the crap out of anybody that was trying to get out just as a matter of just general purpose they were they were beating these people mercilessly beating them, shooting them over, shooting over yep. their heads yeah yep. yeah yeah you had you had the paramilitary force uh that was managed by the agency that were popping rounds into hazaras for no reason um and there there was just a level of violence going on and 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 then um you know, you had ISIS, who was clearly targeting the the the, the crowd. They were that uh, we knew a suicide bomber was on the way. The people knew it. Taliban knew it. So everybody was super nervous about that and on edge. It just was. It was just unparalleled suffering uh, that these people were going through. And frankly, was the hardest part for me as the the de facto pineapple leader. I guess was that. So many of these families were suffering after being out there for 48, 72 hours just from exposure. And and when I got news that a little girl had been trampled by, I think it was Jay Redmond. Yeah, it was, it was like the night of the 25th, right? Six-year-old yeah. girl was trampled to death. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just, um, it took me back to some stuff that I thought I had put behind me, and, and I I just thought, my God, these people are, are, are going through all this and we're telling them to stay. We're telling them to endure. And I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know that this gate's ever going to open again. And, and the Express had been shut down at this point for some time. This was on the 25th and, and it was late at night, our time in Tampa. And I just thought, I can't, man, I can't do this. Like, I can't keep asking these people to stay out there. So I put a message out telling them that, you know, they, they had to make up their own mind, the shepherds, and, and that, that I didn't know if this thing was going to open or not. And it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, you know, and I still, I still, it still haunts me, you know, because there was no, in my mind, it, regardless of which way it went. There was no it, good, good answer, yeah, really. There was, yeah. there was two bad choices, 
two bad choices. And I've had to make those a few times in my life. And I know a lot of people listening have, I'm sure you have. And it's just, it's just one of those things you never really, you you never get over it, you know, but, but uh, it had to, a decision had to be made, uh, or at least I felt like it did, but it was the, the, the night of the 25th leading up to uh, the final moments of the exodus was probably the worst because the suffering had gone on for so long at that airfield. People just were at the wit's end of exhaustion. And, and pain. everybody knew that, 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 that this was going to end soon. It, right? And it the was... clock was ticking. You had a clock ticking for extraction of you know the last plane. We knew that was within hours. And you also had the ticking clock of the suicide bomber that was going to happen at some point, too. So you had two, you had two ticking clocks, and that, that had a profound effect on everybody. And everybody else, everybody who was doing this, had other jobs and other responsibilities, sure including did. yourself. You had a son who was going, last son who's going off to college. You know, you had a business to run. You had a wife who had, you know, wanted your, your attention to other things. Yeah. And your focus is, you know, halfway around the world. Yeah, where it had been most of my adult life, you know, yeah. and, 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 and certainly what I was going through paled in comparison to not only what our Afghan brothers and sisters were going through, but a lot of our volunteers were going through um, really rough stuff. A lot of people quit their jobs. They, they didn't even go into work. You know, Zach ended up taking a whole semester off as a school teacher. And, and you know, they didn't have the revenue to do that. Right, right, um, right. And, 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 and that's the thing that I think a lot of the senior leaders don't understand. They're so tone deaf to this is that what the cost was, yes, on the Afghan people, but on these volunteers. And, and, and not only did, did, did they shift the, the institutional responsibility onto the shoulders of this fragile population that has given us so much for 20 years, but, but they, they just almost looked with indifference or, or entitlement that of, of course that's what they're going to do. I'm not going we're not going to do that, you know and, and, and the fact the, the, the loss of jobs, the loss of revenue, the moral injury, the, the, the retriggering of PTS, that was what and it was you could already start to see it because people weren't sleeping. you know they had gone four or five days without sleep, they weren't eating. And for a lot of our population, our veteran population and our active duty population, it brought back stuff that as a nation we should be ashamed of yes. that we did that to these people. Absolutely. We should be ashamed of it. Absolutely. So let's go Let's go to the critical night of the 26th, um, well, the day of the 26th, when instead of smuggling through the f- people through the fence at night, you're going to do it during the day because yeah. things are just closing down. There's no time yep. left. And you start uh, Captain John Folka, uh, the way he can't use a, a, the, the green uh, – Day glow, uh, yeah. so he's going to put on a pair of red sunglasses. Yeah, and Captain that, Red sunglasses. <laughs> and so, all these, you know, the people who are trying to come across, uh, former special yeah. Afghan special forces, they're instructed to look for the guy with the red sunglasses. Yeah, it started to fall apart really fast in terms of time, and you know, the chat room started to take on a sense of urgency, and it was really, you know, I look back on it and. Um, Man, all these seasoned operators, they just were so patient and 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 I was so in awe of them. The way they 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 particularly Donnie in those final moments, he was a E eight in special forces and fifth group. And he just stepped in, man, and he was like, Hey, you know, I've already got some of my guys out. 
Uh, the first sergeant is at this location. Here's what you need to do. And he just, it was, it yet so calm, so collective, but it was very obvious that we were in the final moments. And, and that for me was when it was, okay, we're going to have to assume risk now. We can't run this thing at night. And, and frankly, if there's other people along that canal that can pull us in that are not 82nd airborne, now's the time. And so we started putting the word out like that. And, 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 I think a lot of the Marines got that. They started pulling people in that that were showing pineapples. Um, and even the Brits, you know, we've gotten feedback on that. But but the bottom line, Ralph, is at this point, it was, it was kind of a it's, it's now or never moment. Everyone knew the time was running out. And the situation at Karzai International Airport was growing increasingly treacherous. Each night, tens of thousands of desperate Afghans and their families were crowding the fence hoping to get in, while the Taliban guards beat them back. Adding to the tension were reports that ISIS-K terrorists were seen near the airport, waiting to launch some kind of attack. And no one knew how much longer the flights out of the country would last. Those Afghans who did manage to get the attention of the paratrooper conductors at the fence had to crawl through a trench filled with sewage before they were checked and let in. Exhausted, the 60-odd members of Task Force Pineapple worked the phones, shepherding Afghans and coordinating with the U.S. paratroopers on the ground. Despite the long odds and distance, their system was working. Hundreds of Afghans were getting on flights out of the country. Then on August 26th, at 5.46 p.m., a huge explosion tore through the crowd near Abbey Gate. An ISIS-K suicide bomber had set off an IED, killing 13 U.S. servicemen and more than 200 Afghan civilians. When Scott heard the news, he said he wept so hard it felt as though the pain of the past 20 years poured out. Yeah, yeah it was 13 service members that included Marines, uh, Navy corpsmen, and Army Special Operator. Um, and, and like you said, several hundred um, Afghans. And the devastation from that bomb, from that suicide bomber, is... Um, I don't know that, it, that, that the true devastation level of it ever got out. Um, because the report that was done never made it to our president and, and um, was only briefed as high as the chief of staff. Yep, um, which is just unbelievable to me. But when those, you know, the girls that were trying to get out, um, that this was in that mad dash through the canal, and um, the canal was extremely crowded at this point, and uh, one of our uh, June, who was one of the shepherds who had kind of disappeared in the beginning because she had other avenues that were were more viable, and and she was one of the ones that was really leading the this group of girls remotely to get to us and and put through the fence. And what what really strikes me about this is that the NMRG. They were not with them originally. The NMRG were actually in a position to get extracted, and they were getting extracted. And there were a couple of them who, who because of the shepherd and the, and the connection there, they, they, they volunteered to go look for those girls and to try to connect with them. And, um, yeah, yeah. and they, you know, it, it's, it's – and so when people, when people talk about, 
you know, Afghans not standing up for themselves, not standing up for each other. It's, uh, it's just, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, yeah. it just couldn't, it could not be further from the truth. We, the stories of, of what these individuals did to honor their families and their friends and their country and what the veterans from our country, from our country did in the active duty on the ground. I, it just, it's epic, you know, it's just so epic. And, and it really, to me, there is a real positive side in all of this. I know it seems very heavy, but the positive side in this is that there's still a lot of good uh, in our country and a Absolutely. lot of good in the in the people who live in this country. And, and to your point early on when you said, you know, you look around the arena and nobody's coming. Now are you going to stay in the bleachers or are you going to lead? And I, th- and I think Operation Pineapple Express and Dunkirk and Moral Compass, they showed us that – um, even if you don't have a plan or resources or a title, it's a hell of a lot better to step into that arena and, and do the right thing than to sit in the bleachers and wish you had. God bless. Yep, absolutely. And, and it, as you pointed out, it happened on both sides. So yeah, governments yeah. failed both in the United States, which is on us. And it happened on the Afghan side, too. Absolutely did. Absolutely did. And Afghans and Americans on both sides stood up and said, no, we're going to, you know, we're not going to let this happen. We're going to do what we can. And, I mean, you guys had very little to work with, really. Yeah. But you yeah. were able to save, you know, thousands of people. So that that was pretty much the end of smuggling yeah. people through. Yeah. And then... Uh, uh, four days later, on the thirty-first, Charlie Company leaves, and 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 that's the end of the U.S. presence yeah. in Afghanistan. Last, last Americans in Afghanistan, and you know it's uh it's but but it wasn't the end of the story, and and you know the the the, the fact of the matter is those volunteer groups continued to help the people on their manifest who didn't get out survive the winter. They paid for safe houses, food drops, medical supplies. The people on our manifest, we worked with another nonprofit. We had 20 babies born between December and the bomb going off. And they're still doing it to this day. Over a year later, these volunteers are still helping them get passports, visas, helping them move from safe house to safe house. And there's still been no public hearings on this thing except for one in September. There's been no accountability. And, you know, Al-Qaeda is reconstituting on that battlefield, Ralph. And, and, and uh, there's a lot about this story that I, I hope people will read and listen to, not just because of the heroism and the, and, and, and the courage of the people who did this, but also because what it means to our future and our kids. There's a lot here that we may be done with Afghanistan, but I'm not so sure it's done with us. I, I also want to talk about uh, you got a call from uh, General Mark Milley of the, the head of JSOC, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, like a week later. Yeah. And uh, you were summoned to the Pentagon. And I would love for you to just to take us through that experience. <laughs> it was surreal. I mean, I, I, got, I got a text from him, and I was sitting at the counter with my wife, frankly exhausted. This was right before 11 September. So it had been a couple of weeks, and we had still worked hard to, to help get people out. And, and there was some some notoriety to these volunteer groups, not just Pineapple, but Dunkirk and others, where we were known. You know, we were kind of known. And, and I felt like, to hell with it. If, 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 if we're going to be the ones paying for safe houses and getting these people out, I'm going to go on the news and I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to tell the story because we're going to need money and we're going to need resources. And so, I, you know, that's – so there was – 
a level of notoriety around that. And, and so I got a text from General Milley saying something to the effect of, Scott, it's Mark Milley, give me a call. And I thought, and I showed it to my wife. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I mean, I retired as a lieutenant colonel. I, <laughs> you know, I, I, you I'd never had any kind from, of. Yeah, the joint no, chief, head of the Joint no, Chief of Staff. No, yeah. and, 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 and the whole thing just to me was a theater of the absurd in the sense that, okay, what, what, do, so I, I went because I really felt like, all right, if there is truly a private public partnership at play here, where, because my thinking was, and a lot of the volunteer groups was, okay, we're going to quietly hand over these manifests to Department of Defense, Department of State, and they are going to responsibly take control of them and, and either extract them or at least get them to an area of immediate safety. Yeah, so even they though they had, they had screwed up in the beginning, if they're kicking yeah. in now, great, great, because yeah. these people still need help. Yeah. So I – when I met, I went into, they was, I was brought into his office. Um, there were several other volunteer groups there, uh, had the, the leaders of those volunteer groups. There were a couple of retired general officers. It was, it was really weird. It was a weird group of people. Not, not that the people were weird, but the, 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 the combination. And, I, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in, the, in, the, in the main conference room of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I am a 53-year-old retired damn storyteller. Like, what in the hell am I even doing here? Yeah, and and so all this conversation went around, and 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 frankly, I felt like it was political theater. I really did. I the talk about the greatest airlift in history and all this, it didn't. It just I I couldn't believe that's. But then we got down to business, and and General Milley started talking about um, private public partnership, and I I honestly, he seemed really sincere about it to me. He it it it, 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 it and, and he followed through on some of the things that he said he was going to do, like trying to get it passed with the National Security Council. Um, what I feel like happened after that was State Department blocked it. The State Department really blocked any meaningful work with these volunteer groups. There's there's some, but it's it's actually very canalized and almost in some ways political. Um, so it, it just died on the vine, and and I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to with, withhold trying to assign blame for that because I don't know. I, I don't really know. I, I think it was just D.C. politics and whatever, but, but, I, but nothing there needs happened. To be, there needs to be some kind of investigation into this. I, I think so. I think there needs to be for sure. Uh, there needs to be public accountability. There needs to be hearings on this, and not just because of the national security threat, which is massively affected by this. But also the moral injury that's been inflicted on our veteran population and our active duty population. There's a recent study out, Ralph, that says 73% of veterans who fought in Afghanistan feel betrayed and 67% feel humiliated. And when you add to that a 30,177 suicides of active duty members and post 9-11 veterans in the last, and a lot of those in the last few years, um, and that is the devil's cocktail. And, and I the, think it is the devil's cocktail. I and think the, the thing yeah. is, is that we've been through this before. That's the horrible thing. Honestly, I can't believe that we're even at that point. But with the level of moral injury, which is an injury on the soul where you are confronted with something. And I've had general officers say things like, I thought the guys would be over this by now. Or thing, or or things like you know, listen, don't take the betrayal route because it makes you seem like a victim. And these are the these are the these are the senior leaders that we served for twenty years, and they're so tone deaf 
to the reality of what's actually happening. I mean, we're seeing upticks in suicide. We're seeing upticks in mental health and anxiety. Why, why in the world would we not come together as a military community around this and own it? You know, I made plenty of mistakes in Afghanistan, but let's own the fact that if we don't address this moral injury and set aside whatever issues we have with each other, but we got to own this moral injury. We have to own the mental health aspect of this. We still have volunteers right now who have cashed in their savings accounts, their kids' college funds, and they don't know, they don't know how to hang up the phone. And let's not forget the fact that we, you know, we, we abandoned the Montagnards in Vietnam. We abandoned the Syrian Kurds, the Iraqi police and army, and now the Afghans. We have a multi-generational systemic habit of wholesale abandonment. And the only way to address a moral injury of this magnitude is because we are taught as special operators, you don't leave a partner on the battlefield. And we were held to account for that by the very leaders who did it, who, who did, did walk away. Now, the only way to set that right to go from moral injury to moral recovery, Ralph, is leaders stepping in and assurances that this systemic problem has been addressed for the future and that future warriors are not going to go through this. And right now, we haven't even talked about it openly. And, 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 and that, to me, I hope that when Americans listen to this, when citizens of the world listen to this, that they're not good with that, that, that we should not be good with that. We should not send our blood and treasure to fight a war for 20 years to build an, a capability that was absent, and they do it, and then you abandon it, and then you expect the people who did that work to just get over it. Yeah. Like that is yeah. it it or every suffer, level su- suffer yeah, silently. silently. That's what yep. they want them to do. Just yep. go away and suffer silently. And, and that's why like, I wrote the book. Yeah, that's well, why good, I wrote the book. God bless you, man. You've done a wonderful thing and you. uh you you've done a great service to the country and the world. I mean Let and, me and, let me leave you with this too, just as a so, so recruiting and retention her horrible right now. There are, there, in the special operations community, there are special committees right now hurriedly and quietly trying to figure out what's happening with recruiting and retention. It's not a hard thing to figure out. I got, a, I got an email from a, a young SF captain who fought in Afghanistan, and he wrote me. He said, hey, thanks for writing Pineapple Express. Thanks for standing up for us. Thanks for being a voice for us. He goes, I'm getting out because this is not freedom of the, freeing the oppressed as we're supposed to do as Green Berets. And he goes, I can tell you there are 50 other captains getting out with me. 50, 50 captains. And, you know, Special Forces is only 6,500 guys, you know. And, and so recruiting and retention is terrible. And also pub, the public trust in the military has always been in the high 70s in the war on terror. It's now at 56%. It dropped 11 points after the Afghanistan collapse. And if we can't look at that, as you said, and figure that out and, 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 and not realize that we have to walk it back to what we did in Afghanistan, and yeah. we have to set that right. Yeah. And, and also, I feel as though like the media has, has just kind of brushes these things aside, right? I, I can't believe that the media is not covering. Like, for example, we have special operators that are still in country, Afghan special operators. And they have, you know, really good in, information. You know, they're reporting consistently that Osama bin Laden's son's back in Afghanistan. Now, why would Osama bin Laden's son be back in Afghanistan? I mean, seriously, like, the, you know, that does not take a, a profound intelligence assessment, right? That, 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 is, that is a major eyebrow raise yeah. right there. Well, you said, and, it, you said it at the beginning. Like, we are, we're in a worse position than we were in 2001. Yep. Right? And any way you look at it, it's worse. All it of is. the loss of life. All of the loss of trust, 
and the Taliban are back in charge. And yep. uh, they feel I'm probably safer and, and more secure than ever because they the do. United States isn't coming back. Right. And if they try, like the Afghans aren't going to help them, not this time. Not if we yeah. don't set some things right. I right. do think there's some ways that we could even just work with the resistance. There is a resistance there, just like in Ukraine. It, you know, Because one of the quickest ways to, to set things right with what was done with the abandonment would also be to show even just moral support to the Afghan resistance. I mean, there are, there are people really resisting to a level that if we don't wake up and recognize that that is our only antibody, to Al-Qaeda and ISIS is this resistance. We're going to have another 9-11 commission where we say, man, we yeah. missed it again. When our government failed in the summer of 2021, 100 veterans and civilian volunteers honored a promise and showed the world what leadership looks like. These volunteers, members of Task Force Pineapple, were a mix of retired and active duty U.S. Special Operations Forces, Foreign Service officers, congressional staff from both parties, former intelligence officers, and more. They were the best of America. Leading them was retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. In several chaotic days, they rescued more than a thousand Afghan soldiers, interpreters, and at-risk women and children but sadly left more than 25,000 more behind. Men and women who had worked for us and were later slaughtered by the Taliban or are still being hunted down. Among them were more than 18,000 special immigration visa applicants that have never been processed. Thankfully, Nizam and his family made it out. Today, they're relocated near Scott's home in Florida. It was a promise kept. What happened in the summer of 2021 in Afghanistan was a massive failure of our government. As Scott concludes in his brilliant book, Operation Pineapple Express, and I quote, the United States surrendered 20 years of strategic social capital in the blink of an eye, a strategic blunder that will haunt our society for years to come. Or as one Green Beret and Pineapple Shepherd said, And I quote, If I knew on September 12, 2001, what I know now about how our government would treat Afghanistan, I would never have walked into the recruiter's office and joined the special forces in the first place. We honor all the members of Task Force Pineapple for defining what America can be once again, and their leader Scott Mann for his excellent and important new book, Operation Pineapple Express. He's today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are myself, Frank Hobbs, and Apex Media. If you haven't already, please download, rate, review, and subscribe. And check out some of our past episodes, such as an unbelievable human trafficking survival story. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. <laughs> <laughs>